Hi, and welcome to The Green Canary. We're the environmental podcast where we bring you news on climate change and pretty much everything to do with the environment and the politics around it all. I'm Ant Sharwood. I'm a journo and and an author, and I'm sitting opposite Elfie Scott. Hi, Elfie. Hi there. Hi, I'm Elfie Scott. I'm a journalist and a writer and an enthusiastic consumer of Succession Season 3. Ah. Yes, it's coming along. Excellent. All right, this week we're going to be talking about more coal mining in the Hunter and whether or not that's a great idea. Hint, probably not. (laughs) We've also got police raids on environmental groups, a little thing called eco-fascism, and Ant, I'm going to tell you about assassin spiders. But for the moment, Ant, could you please tell me what on earth is happening in The Hunter? Of course I can. Can't wait to hear about the spiders. But look, um, The Hunter Valley is a beautiful place, and The Hunter Valley is also a place where people have done coal mining for nearly 200 years. Uh, It's been going on there for ages. Um, Most of the coal mines are sort of up north and north of the wine area, which is around the sort of Cessnocky, Pocolbany kind of area. Here's what's happening. Uh, Yan Coal, the Chinese-owned company that I think has 11 mines. Mm -hmm. Is that something? uh, Is that right? Yeah. They've taken out a thing called an assessment lease. What is an assessment lease? Basically, it's not a declaration that, hey, we're going to build a mine, but it's, it's... it's them saying, you know what, we're interested in the minerals under this particular bit of land. And the problem is they've taken it out under a particular bit of land that is near Pocolbin. Now, call me crazy, but wine areas, basically, they make two things, Elfie. They make wine, they make a glass of Riesling, which I'm, I'm led to believe you don't mind one of from time to time. You would be correct, Ant. Yeah, Thank you for good. pointing that out. But wine regions also make tourism. That's 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 the big business that they're in. Mm. And I don't think anyone wants to be sitting in Pocolbin with, with those beautiful views of the rolling hills and the sort of cliffs in the background of the Hunter Valley, kangaroos hopping by, a cheese platter in front <laughs> of you, and coal dust. Does anyone want that? No, it doesn't exactly sound scenic. And the thing is, I've visited both wine regions and I have visited both as well as open-cut coal mines. Yeah. And they don't seem to mix terribly well. So... There is a new campaign that's been launched by the Hunter Valley Protection Alliance and it's called No New Mines in Our Vines. And they're saying basically that coal mines encroach on the area and have the potential to destroy the $550 million industry. So, I mean, (laughs) you cannot... I mean, that industry's obviously been hit a little bit with, with the import tariffs that were chucked on Australian wine by yeah, China, yeah. which is, you know, the biggest export market. But but nonetheless, it's a massive industry. It's the sort of industry you don't want to stuff with. Yeah. And and um, what, what exactly, I assume what, what they're trying to do, this this campaign, is to set it up like Margaret River or, or one of the French or, or Californian wine regions where, where the local, whether it's the council or whoever, says... This is about wine here. It's not about other stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think they're in The Guardian today basically saying this wouldn't happen in Champagne or the Napa Valley. And it's very indicative of our governments. But they are asking the New South Wales government to step in like state governments have in the Barossa and Margaret River and put this legislative ring around the place. I can't believe I just said the word legislative perfectly on the fly. How good was that? Got it. I'm pumped on myself. it 14 times today before we came in here and that was definitely <laughs> the first time but but listen this is this is a big deal that's going on in, in Newcastle they're, they're they're fighting to you know to, to, to protect their wine region mm-hmm. we know that Hunter region coal sales peaked in 2014 anyway so I'm not quite sure how many more wines we uh, mines wines mines we need 
in the area, especially in the wine area. Mm-hmm. But it's not the only thing going on in the, in, in the Hunter region a couple of hours north of Sydney at the moment, is it? Yeah, so it really has been the centre of conflict for the past couple of weeks. There is a group called Blockade Australia and they have been staging a lot of sort of high publicity protests, gaining a lot of international attention. I'm going to play this video for you right now so you can get a sense of what they're doing. Okay. Responding to the climate crisis. This is humans trying to survive. This is humans trying to overcome the system that is killing us, that is enslaving us. And we're trying to induce the social tipping points which will give us a chance at another generation. (laughs) All right, so that is a video of two of the protesters and you can see that they're abseiling on Newcastle Coalport. If you watch it for a bit longer, I think that you can actually see that there are the police waiting at the bottom to scoop them up. Yeah. But it's pretty impressive work. I mean, God, it takes guts to do something like that. It really, really does. Uh, there, there, there were some rude words, but I mean, they're a long way above the ground and there are massive, massive piles of coal uh, in the background there. Mm-hmm. And that's some serious activism. So... Let me get this straight. The group is Blockade Australia. Yeah. Do they not like Newcastle Coalport, which is, of course, our largest coal port, or do they just not, not like the coal industry itself? Well, I would say that they do not like the coal industry at large in itself. And what they are really protesting against is climate inaction from the Australian government off the back of COP26. So they've been doing things like this. They've been getting, you know, this is a Washington Post headline that we've been looking at here. Um, they've been getting a lot of international attention, chaining themselves to train lines and things like that. Like that and generally causing a bit of a ruckus. So, so this this Australian activist group has been calling causing an international news story. Mm-hmm. But it was a local environment group, wasn't it, in the Hunter that seems to have borne the brunt of police anger. And I'm trying yes. to work out if the two incidents are related. So, I will show you this tweet. This was a tweet posted by a woman called Georgina Woods, who is an environmental um, advocate, and she works for the Hunter community. Environment Centre. So she posted this the other day, basically saying that the police had raided their tiny little community headquarters that had been there for something like 15 years. Basically, they've just been working away quietly and the police came in, took their laptops, took their drones, for some reason took a coal mining handbook. Not sure entirely why. So so, so this local environment group has has been raided. They've had Mm -hmm. all their their laptops and, as, as you say, a handbook taken. Now, this, this Georgina Woods, I actually contacted her today because I still don't understand. Why is a local hunter community environment group being raided by the New South Wales police? What have they done? Are they in with Blockade Australia? What's going on? So I contacted Georgina Woods and she said to me, Ah, oh, hi, Ant. Good to hear from you. I got a call earlier today from your colleague, Elfie Scott. So well done, Elfie. <laughs> Too slow, and Too slow. And that's how organised we are. We're both chasing the same stories without even liaising with each other. But well done really by you. You were, you were many hours ahead of me. And, you know, an hour is, is a year in journalism. Well done. Um, but what did Georgina tell you exactly? So Georgina told me that as far as she knows, no member of the Environment Centre has any connection whatsoever with Blockade Australia. And she said said that it was really quite baffling and it seemed a little bit heavy-handed, she said, for the police to turn up to their headquarters and do something like this. And she'd really never seen action taken by the cops like that before. So, look, 
I think we can file all of this. I'm not quite sure what the tie-in is there, but but coal is an emotive issue, mm -hmm. isn't it? Um, we all know about Labor's Joel Fitzgibbon, who had an electorate up in the area, and and coal is just is just big emotive news in the Hunter region, as it is further afield. I'm sure that'll play out in the area in the federal election next year. Yeah. But why don't we move on, Elfie? What's what's next on, on your mind this week? All right. So I would like to talk to you about a little thing called eco-fascism. And mm. this is something that both Ant and I have been interested in. Um, it comes off the back of a great article from The Guardian's US environment reporter, Oliver Millman. And it is essentially this sort of theoretical political framework. To be honest, every time I talk about it, I have to Google it again because mm. my brain just always forgets the definition. Ah. So... Please tell me what ecofascism well, is look, again. Look, in simple terms, you can call it a theoretical political f framework. It's it's as simple as this. It's it's people from the far right, um, sort of holding their positions but filtering them through an ecological lens. Mm. So, for example, um, you know, people on the far right have, and a lot of studies have shown this. Climate denialism is on the wane. It's become an ineffectual weapon. No, everyone knows the world is warming. It's very hard to deny after a and, while, really. And that human hands are at work in that, right? Mm -hmm. it, it is impossibly, impossible to scientifically deny, and now it's impossible anecdotally to deny because we start to see more and more evidence of it. Yeah. So the, the, the far right has pivoted, and they're now saying things like, ah, mass migration is causing climate change as oh, as one it, it's nonsensical as one person said on twitter today um or, and or, or they're saying things like you know it's it's often around mi mi migration um our country for its sustainable future whatever country it is cannot handle all these migrants or cannot handle so mm. so old right-wing sort of memes or or topics are now being filtered through an eco lens Lens. I've become a New Zealander. Lens um, <laughs> yeah. to to, uh, to sort of almost frame uh, far right parties as your friend, mm. as your friend protecting your country in the way you want it protected now through the ecological end. And it's coming here, Elfie. I don't know where it's where or when, but it's coming. Yeah. One of the far right parties here, mark my words, will start adopting this um, as it's called eco fascist framework and start working these ideas in. That's kind of a bleak thing to talk about, but it was a good yarn, wasn't it, by Milman, yeah, and it's yeah. worth talking about. Absolutely. And I think it's really important as well to put it in the sort of historical context uh, because this is something that you brought up earlier, that it can be sort of analogised to the anti-vax movement in the sense that it starts to pick up all of this nationalism and far-right yeah. um, ideology and a lot of racism. And it's important to note that eco-fascism has a lot of its roots in Nazism because Nazism had this ideology of blood and soil and this mystical connection to the land and things this like that. nativism that that exactly. uh, ties in with uh, kind of sustainability and ideas like that. Yeah, so. totally. And it, it's grim. It's grim news. And look, you, I think you're absolutely right. I would predict that it's going to land here eventually. So, so, so let's let's talk about something else. Let's okay. let's talk about something that's in the streets. We've we, we we're all seeing this at the moment. They're everywhere. Um, sounds like I'm still stuck on the last topic. They're everywhere. But actually, what I'm talking about is. COVID masks. Now, it, 
it seems to me that they are the uh, pollution issue of our time that no one's talking about yet. Yeah, totally. And I mean, I don't know if you've noticed this, but bloody hell, when you walk down the street, they're littered everywhere. When I went on a bushwalk the other week, they're just like jammed in waterways and under rocks. Like disposable masks are being disposed of very liberally. They're being disposed of uh, according to a Danish university. And the Danes are terrific at counting, so I'm I'm going to (laughs) absolutely take their word for this. At three million... Wait for it. Big pause. Three million a minute. Three million a minute, which translates to 129 billion a month, apparently, if their maths are good and they're Danes. So, of course, there are. Look, their ice cream and their maths are terrific. But at the risk of, uh, you know, culturally stereotyping Danes, this is not about them. This is about the masks. And the masks are a bloody problem. They're not just a problem because they're this new thing polluting the world. The loops that go around your ears uh, need to be snipped because those loops will choke wildlife. Yeah, right. So it's sort of like um, those old six-pack packets that you had to cut before you chuck them in the bin because they would strangle turtles. Yeah, exactly. So so that's not some good news. But look, we like to end uh, the Green Canary pod with uh, something a bit quirky or something a little bit in the realm of good news. And I believe you've got some. Yes, I do. Okay, I am going to show you a spider ant. That's not good news. Look, it's a cute spider. Just have well, it's slightly better news. Have a little gander at what it. Is, what is that thing? That's not cute. I, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Look, for, okay. it's it's ugly cute. We, that's how I would describe for, it. For those who, who who are listening to this podcast, not not seeing the screen in front of us, um, that looks like three spiders making love to itself. Um, <laughs> one of them's brown and one of them's black, and it, it's sort of a it's a bit like a trapdoor spider that. Um, got tangled in an ant's web, ant's nest. It's it's an unusual looking thing, but <laughs> okay. I think you're being very very rude about this spider right now. I would stop body shaming him immediately. All right, well, look, I won't body shame this spider. I'm sure it's got a lovely name that redeems it. What's it called? It does. So this little fella is called the hunter. Oh, sorry, not an earth. Nope. It is called the Kangaroo Island Assassin Spider. Oh, that's a delightful name. Yeah, I like it so much more now. It kills. Yeah, it's a murderer. So it's called an assassin spider because it actually hunts and kills other spiders. And weirdly enough, it was only discovered in 2010. It's this really rare ancient species of spider that was discovered on Kangaroo Island. And... The fact is when the bushfires tore through Kangaroo Island a couple of years ago, um, do you remember that? The bushfires, how could you forget it? It was the Black Summer and, you know, half of Kangaroo Island. I've been to Kangaroo Island. Half of it burnt. Mm -hmm. Um, It's it's koala population, which which is not endemic. Um, They were introduced there, but they're a much-loved, you know, creature on Kangaroo Island. The koala population was decimated. Yeah, yeah. The the island itself was decimated. All that sort of wild western half of it just burnt. And what are you saying? That this spider was only found in 2010 was thought to have been burnt out of existence? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think that when the bushfires did tear through in 2019, 2020, there was a bit of a focus on all of the cute and cuddly animals, fair enough. Yep. But, you know, we sort of missed out on talking about the invertebrate species. So they made it. But they made it. And this week, two of these spiders were rediscovered on the island and it seems that they survived, which is great news. Look, if one horrible, horrific, ugly, but ecologically important and... I can't believe how mean you're being about this spider. Perhaps to some people, cute species had to pull through. I'm glad it was then. Me too. 
Thanks for saying that. All right. All right. That is all we have time for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. And please make sure to like, subscribe and tune in next week so that we can catch you all up on the essential environmental news. And before we leave today, we would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of the land on which we're recording today. We'd like to pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples here today. That's very nice, Sophie. And don't forget, you can follow us on socials as well. We're Green Canary Pod on Twitter. We're Green Canary Media on Instagram. And we're going to be tweeting and gramming as much as possible in weeks to come. Thanks. Bye.